on today's episode. So there are two circles. A small circle is what we want to be, what gets us out of bed every day. But there has to be a bigger circle, which is what I call the artistic vision, a way to connect humanity using music to express what human voices is limited to express. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Gould. Today I have with me Taiwanese American conductor Mei An Chen. Mei An is acclaimed for infusing orchestras with energy, enthusiasm, and high level music making. She is currently music director of the Chicago Sinfonietta and has been chief conductor of Austria's Recreation Grosses Orchestra Graz at Stereati since fall 2021, making her the first female Asian conductor to hold this position with an Austrian orchestra. She also serves as the first ever artistic partner of Houston's River Oaks Chamber Orchestra. She has appeared with distinguished orchestras throughout the Americas, Europe, Taiwan, the UK and Scandinavia and continues to expand her relationships with orchestras worldwide. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. And it's a pleasure for me to be on this show. Thank you so much. Great. Well, let's get going. Well, I'm ve- I'm very excited. You are the first musician we've had on our show. And so I've got lots of questions for you around, around leadership, around talent, around your journey, around the future of music. I'm also going to ask you, in, in the UK, we have a very popular show called Desert Island Discs, where important and interesting people are asked if you were marooned on a desert island what are the eight pieces of music you would take with you so i'm going to leave that with you and then ask you at the end because that's always it's a fun one so let's start with your journey as a conductor your journey to being a conductor how and where and why do you think you developed your passion for music and conducting and and when did you kind of know this is what you wanted to do Well, that's a great question, and it's such an honor for me to be the first musician on your podcast. A very quick answer to your wonderful question is that I grew up with parents who loved music and never had the chance to be trained as musicians themselves. So they bestow upon my older sister and me their dreams of wanting to have well, free concert at home, uh, very naive parents. And so my sister ended up playing the violin. They wanted me to accompany her. And my sister was really a virtual artist at heart. She rather create in her own space and share when she's ready. So I ended up with the double duty of entertaining my parents. Now, very first time when I play in an orchestra as a shy violinist at age 10, I ran home. I told my parents, violin and piano are fun, but I really want to play the largest instrument in the room. So they frowned and looked Rory. They didn't know where to get me teachers, and they were absolutely right. It wasn't something you can learn. So I was one stubborn girl who took no for answer. So I would show up in my rehearsal Having my violin part completely memorized, given that it's probably very simple, I will fix my eyes on the conductor to try to learn from observation. So he looked around, all the kids were buried in the music, not knowing I was trying to steal his craft at age 10. Uh, And so are you one of those people, one of those lucky people who always knew? So clearly you had a passion for music and that came from your home environment, but Did you think this is something I love, but this might not be what I do for the rest of my life? Or did you feel very strongly, 
I found my thing. This is what I want to do. And everything else kind of falls by the wayside. Actually, at age 10, that's my calling. I knew I wanted to be a conductor. I just didn't know being a conductor requires me to talk a whole lot later. <laughs> I thought I could communicate through body language. And it was just something that I was so fascinated. And I got myself uh, as much training as I could. And then there was a youth orchestra that, um, from America that came to my uh, native country, Taiwan, and the conductor, actually British conductor, worked a long time in Boston. <clears throat> His name is Benjamin Zander, and he uh, heard me play for him when uh, the youth orchestra from New England Conservatory was touring in Asia, and he was very brave. He offered my parents scholarship on the spot and said, if you'd like your daughters to study violin in Boston, I will find her scholarship. And so I tricked my parents into giving me a ticket to come to America so I can finally learn conducting. And if you had to break down the skills of, of a conductor, clearly you need to be a supremely talented musician, but it, there's a lot more to it, I suspect. Because there's there's people in there, there's leadership in there, there's communication, and I imagine there's there's quite a lot more as well that I'm missing. So could you talk about kind of the template for a really good conductor? What goes in? Yeah. So you know what drew me to conducting was the physical aspect that is very obvious to everybody. You know, I just thought, well, I heard music, my body wants to move, and that was just kind of a instinctive reaction. But I realized later that being a good conductor, as you put it, requires so much more because my instruments are live human beings that comes with different moods, different feelings. And when you put, you know, close to 80 to 100 people in a room trying to create a unified interpretation, that's really interesting because everybody has got their own idea of tempo, of how loud they should be playing here. So it's also a lesson of psychology. How do I manage all this team of creative individuals and mold it into something of a unified voice? And to be given basically what I call speed dating the orchestra when you are a, a guest conductor or even, you know, my music directorship with Chicago Sinfonietta, we get three rehearsals only before the first performance. And in the UK, sometimes you get one or two rehearsals. And so that's really speed dating in terms of there's a lot at play and how do you manage all that talent and also what you believe the composer is trying to say and, and morph into something meaningful at the performance. But I imagine that there's really quite a difference in skills required to take a piece of music to interpret it in the way that you want to do it and obviously that that's a creative process an analytical process then to communicate that as you were just saying to communicate that to a, a group of people who you may not know at all well or have never met before there's a whole range of skills in there right there, there's the analytical there's a creative then there's how to communicate then there's how to read pretty quickly to assess people very quickly to see what they're capable of and certainly work out what's the best way to communicate to them. So I'm, I'm super interested in how you've kind of, have you learned by doing? Because the people side, so you know, you're a brilliant musician and that's what, you know, it's your life's passion. That's beyond 
question but the people side are you specifically trained in that or are you just learning by doing and seeing how people respond and think well that didn't work i won't do that again well that clearly did work so i'm just kind of interested in how you got skilled yeah. at that side i think people don't realize that you know the training for conducting it, exactly like you put it i mean you learn on the job and so it's a very catch-22 if you are not giving opportunities to be in front of a group, how do you learn how, that skills of managing talented people? And so I basically had to learn from being being given opportunities and learn it real, really quickly in terms of how do you manage that whole process? And, you know, when you're giving such a limited time with so many notes, what's the pacing of the rehearsals? How do you read the room and, you know, you're in London. I am talking from Chicago, but literally I'm taking off to conduct my orchestra in Austria. I mean, there's, there's this other complex cultural competency in terms of, you know, when you're working in UK and America, uh, as I'm now training, I, I've turned the table around. You know, I benefit so much from another wonderful mentor of mine, Marin Alsop, who is now uh, being given an appointment in London. And, you know, she has taught me, you, you have to be very efficient in rehearsals, especially in UK and American orchestras. And so I've turned that table to try to come up with a formula to train our young conductors. And literally nobody talks about this. And so I said the formula is really easy, but you know, it's hard to achieve. But once you have the formula, you have to practice at it because people think you just come on the podium and start talking or, or rehearsing. But you know, in America or in uh, UK, um, if you talk more than you know, 10 words, when the orchestra stop, they start like writing you off because they want to see what you can do with your hands. So my formula, for those of you who are interested in this, it's really simple, but it's a hard exercise. So there are four elements within 10 words, a limit of 10 words. So where it is that we're starting, who is involved, those two are very easy. The musical intent which is hard to do with like two or three words, followed by technical help, meaning how, how do I play this thing? You know, louder, softer, more legato. But the musical intent is hard to get. How do you inspire the musicians with just one or two words to give them the musical imagination? And so, you know, I have the luxury in Germany and Austria, the orchestras there, they give me a lot more rehearsals, sometimes six to eight rehearsals. And if you talk really quick and really short, and then they're like, wait, there, there's a lot more time. <laughs> and so it's, it's interesting, how do you pace yourself in different countries even though the art form is ex almost exactly the same. I mean, they still respond to your gestures on the podium, but the human side is a lot more that I learn later from the experience. That's really interesting what you say about cultural competency or different ways of doing things, because music, music is music wherever you go, right? A beautifully played violin sounds the same and doesn't respect borders, nationalities, or, or histories. So I'm super interested in how you kind of are able to quickly assess different ways of doing things, different ways of communicating as you operate with people who are producing a very, you know, almost identical sound, but they're coming from different cultural backgrounds and different ways of 
I guess, doing things. So that must mean you have to learn very quickly on your feet, as we said already. But I guess it also means that you have to think about the people behind you, the audience as well. And you have to have a feel mm -hmm. for how different audiences respond. So is that is that part of your kind of overall algorithm, as it were? You know, you're thinking about how you're going to relate to your musicians, um, but yeah. you're also thinking about the audience. And so do you feel that? Can you kind of feel how an audience is receiving something? And, and, and does that inform your, I guess, your analysis, your sort of interpretation of the music, it, it clearly must feed into it. Yes. And, and, you know, let me put it two ways. I think music is universal. And so, you know, if, if you play Beethoven 5 in different countries, you are likely going to get very similar response just because, you know, Beethoven is universal in his message. And so What's really interesting is the person that has inspired me to think about audience in general is actually my older sister who grew up, as you heard me, not that she didn't like the violin, it just wasn't natural under her chin. And she, her natural inclination was always everything but classical music. So she has exposed me to all kinds of the folk music, the pop music, the rock music. And so... We, we're the polar opposite, if you will. And But sometimes she was my compass when I'm interpreting something in Beethoven or Dvorak or Tchaikovsky, something that we thought we know for hundreds of years. Because I keep thinking the majority of our audience is probably more like my sister, who's not trained in terms of analyzing, well, the, here's the development of the, you know, of the, the, the sonata form. She's not thinking about that. She's thinking about, oh my gosh, the orchestra sounded like they're holding hands, standing at the edge of the cliff. So sometimes I do tell the orchestra, the, you know, I know you know this music really well, but imagine someone is hearing this for the first time. What does this passage mean to them? And that pushes them, you know, allow, allowing them and pushes them to, to go the extra mile in terms of, okay, we're not just going to go autopilot because it's so easy. You know, we have about, I, I wanted to say maybe 50 to 100 really standard pieces. And, you know, the, another fearsome thing that people don't understand is the orchestra has played 50 times, at least a Beethoven fifth, when this might be only my fifth time connecting it, you know, as a young conductor. And so, and I always use an a, a image, and this might be fun for business leaders. An orchestra is like a wolf. They smell blood and you're done. And so, you know, how do you, how do you come as a young conductor with what do you think, you know, here, here's a, a fabulous story to, to share, a personal story. So uh, uh, I'm about to make debut with Chicago Symphony at Rovinia Festival. It's their summer home. I connected them 10 years ago in my subscription debut with them. And they were playing Scheherazade by Rimsky-Korsakov. So this is a very well-known pieces. They have recorded with some of the best conductors in the world. And so who am I? I approached the harpist after a rehearsal and said, would you mind trying to place this glissando? Just, just, you know, like one beat later than the, what the composer wrote. And she looked at me with like, well, I've recorded this with, you know, oh, and she started naming the conductors. And I'm like, well, only if you like to try. And so she tried my, uh, my way, 
the next rehearsal and gave me the biggest smile. She said, I've met, I, everybody else should do it this way because then you can hear the heart. And so it's, it's psychology in terms of you have to see if she's receptive of my ideas that's different from all the other ideas that she has followed through over the years. And here's a beautiful example of somehow I won her over and she was able to try my new idea. And, you know, and but if the person is not open, I could have lost, you know, that, that could be the last time I conducted the Chicago Symphony. So it's it's really interesting feel. I must admit, I'd never thought of an orchestra as being like a wolf, but I but I hear you, right? You're looking at them, they're looking at you, and they're 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 trying to suss you out, work you out pretty quickly. <laughs> when you think about the most talented musicians that you've worked with, what are the characteristics that they all have in common? Because it can't just be raw talent, or maybe it is just raw talent. But I've in, in doing this podcast and people I've met in my life, I, I, I've never found anyone who says talent's enough. It's always talent plus. So what is it talent plus for, for a great musician? I would say, you know, one of my most endearing colleagues of all time has to be Yo-Yo Ma. And, you know, the founder of Chicago Sinfonietta, Maestro Paul Freeman, founded Chicago Sinfonietta to be the most diverse orchestra. But he was the first one to have given Yo-Yo Ma his first professional engagement when Yo-Yo was just a teenager. And so we have a lot of history with Yo-Yo. And, you know, when you look at someone like Yo-Yo, I always try to learn from him that it must be a personal mission to be world's greatest cellist but at the same time his mission has impacted so there are two circles a small circle is what we want to be what gets us out of bed every day but there has to be a bigger circle which is what I call the artistic vision and his big circle has impacted so much the world in terms of bringing music as a way to connect humanity, using music to express what human voices is limited to express. And so I think, you know, I try to learn what is my personal mission, using conducting as a way to connect with people. But the bigger mission is how can I use that to impact even more people's lives? And so I try to think, you know, one of my earliest manager always told me, that music is a gift to the community we serve. And so it's, you know, don't take it lightly that it's all just about notes. You know, I remember as I was beginning to expand from violinist into conducting, and my violin teacher would say, well, Mayan, you have all the notes down, but what are you trying to say? So what I'm trying to say is that there's always a, a bigger mission of what we do. I mean, we might be tied into our needy greedies, but we should always keep track of our big artistic vision. What, what are we trying to do impacting the world in our role? Going back to your, your journey, and I, I'm sh- sure I could be wrong, but my sense is there are many more male conductors than there are female conductors, and it, it, you're, you're therefore pretty unusual. How much has that changed, and why is that? Well, you are absolutely right. That is still a, a fairly do- male-dominated field, especially on the top. And so my dear mentor, Miss Marin Alsop, uh, has broken so many glass ceilings, and she founded the Taki Alsop Fellowship this year, celebrating the 20th anniversary. And so she has launched so many of our 
young women connectors' careers, and it's really impactful in terms of helping young women to to find our own voice in a field that is still very dominated by male connectors. And so, I think there's some of us turning that around. You know, the fellowship program, the Freeman Fellowship Program. That Chicago Sinfonietta has founded. We have launched in my short tenure. You know, we I expanded the conducting portion only as you know, of 2014, but we have launched you know a good dozen of conductors working in the world right now. There's an assistant conductor working with the Royal Scottish Orchestra. There's a fellow that's living in Berlin and that's conducting all the best orchestras in the world. And you know, we try to sort of turn. What Marin has given me uh, around to help uh, conductors of diverse background, which is also uh, occupying very small percentage in the field, and so we thought by helping, you know, the next generation that we could create a ripple effect, and maybe someday that we could increase that percentage a lot more. So, so what are the what are the impediments right now? Obviously, there's history, and you know, your industry, this, this profession clearly has some. Some, I guess, old-fashioned practices, but now, as of today, what are the what are the remaining impediments that's that are it's stopping, or preventing, or making harder for women to progress as far as as men? You know, the symphony orchestra. I have chosen a field that is very much ingrained in traditions, and and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, still, I love the all classics, and that's the sort of the meat and potatoes of our repertoire. But, you know, if you look at how this is pre-pandemic time, 2019, I think there was a survey, not, well, women conductors only occupy, I think, less than 10 or 12%. But if you look at women composers, that was even worse. It was less than 2% of the entire repertoire. And so my orchestra recorded Project W, produced by SETI Records as based in Chicago, but they, they're an international showcase artist company. And it's amazing that if, those of you who have Spotify, I'm not making this up. If you Google Project W Chicago Sinfoniata and that first track by Florence Price, who became the first African-American woman when Chicago Symphony premiered her symphony in 1933, making her the first African-American woman whose work was premiered by a major orchestra. I can't believe our first track on Project W on Spotify has, has over 1.1 million plays. That is really a very high for a classical track. And so I think there is, you know, we seem to tap into this, look at this most neglected group of minorities, woman composers over the centuries. And now I'm I'm encouraged to to feel that, you know, all the major orchestras have tried to raise the percentage a little bit higher. But, you know, thanks to organization like Donne, D-O-N-N-E, that's founded by the wonderful soprano living, Brazilian soprano living in London, Gabriela, who has really uh, sort of called this out among the major orchestra, look the percentage of women composers. And so hopefully, you know, collectively that we can all push this forward because there's so many hidden gems. So here, here's an example. Uh, the first symphonic composer in Croatia who happened to be a woman, 
Dora Pejecevic, who died in mid-30s after giving birth to her son, a year after giving birth to her only son. And she she has all this incredible, when, when my orchestra premiered her F-sharp minor symphony, 100 years after it was premiered in Europe. So we did this in in uh, 2018. Uh, actually, it's one of our our interns that that you know Google all the women composers all over the all over the internet to really compile a list. And so I didn't know this name until I saw it on the list. And my musicians say, oh my gosh, it sounded it has shadows of Strauss. She studied with Strauss teacher, Bruckner, Mahler. And who is this woman? It's, uh, her, her music is so strong and yet nobody plays it. And so it was it was wonderful for our my orchestra to tap into the hidden gems of the repertoire. And I'm hoping that, you know, by recording them and by bringing programming it, that other or orchestras would would follow suit and, and also embrace that. Yeah, so it sounds like it's definitely partly a, a, a role model issue, but I guess also discovery. And, and there is a sort of paradox there in that music has never been more accessible digitally. You know, you can you can find almost any piece of music you you want online. So I, I'm I'm interested really in your thoughts around sort of the future of music, which is a broad question. But right. in theory, it's easier than ever to find almost any piece of music, whether that is, you know, it, there are a number of music platforms. Does that make you optimistic or does that kind of make you pessimistic? Because in other areas you've seen there's, in theory, enormous choice, but people just keep reverting to one or two things the same as everyone else. So when you think about it's probably the wrong term, but classical music. Are you optimistic or pessimistic for sort of future awareness, future demand, future consumption? I'm optimistic just because the same com conversation has sort of repeated over a long period of time. I mean, like 50 years ago, 20 years ago, you could find the same article saying classical music is going to die. Well, it hasn't died. And so I am, I am grateful that it's still going I think the question is twofold. I think for those, you know, I started my career working in youth orchestra. So, so I, it was a way for me to, of coming full circle. Youth orchestra brought me out of my native country to pursue further in the West. And so when I witness people who actually make music firsthand, and so I think that is a very key point that I want, want to make is that for, for people who have experience making music themselves, they become the future consumer of such art form, whether they become professional musicians or not. That is besides the question. But I think so many of what I call my kids ended up still be, they wanted to be part of that, that music making that they understand that is so essential to their lives. And so you know, I think we have to do a better job in, in making sure that we continue that tradition of training them to make music firsthand and not expecting, okay, if we just cultivate audiences, they will come. I think it's twofold. So we have to cultivate music's role in our young people early on. And also at the same time, for those people who didn't grow up with classical music, like my sister, uh, for one one reason or another to make classical music relevant to them. And I can, I can assure you, you know, the same piece of music. I like to compare 
music with with food. I don't know if it has to do with my great grandfather from uh, southern China was a noodle master um, that traveled to Taiwan and and somehow. That's how my grandfather, you know, sort of ended up in Taiwan. There's a great comparison between music and and food. So, for example, we don't have to question about people living on food. Everybody has to eat every day. But we question on music. But I think music is the same way in terms of we need it. So here's an example. I grew up admiring this 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 story. So this happened, you know, I wanted to say 1948 during that era when the new state of Israel was forming. So the Israel Philharmonic has to perform. And this is what Bernstein. So I'll I'll give you the the actual quote that of what happened. So the orchestra and audience again were in danger. Uh, quote an air ray siren went off in the middle of Beethoven concerto that I was conducting from the piano, unquote. Bernstein said when he returned, quote, we got to the end of the first movement and this thing was wailing and I got up to say, whoever has to leave, leave now. And no one left and I sat down and played what I thought would be my swan song. We came into a kingship, a family relationship, the orchestra members with each other and with me, unquote. And I always remember reading the stories about, I mean, the bomb could like fall into the concert hall and yet people held on to each other through music because they needed that at that moment more than anything. And so I think music has a great power, even classical music. And so I I have great hope that if we do the right cultivation of our young future generations, our current generations, even our older generations who tend to understand classical music more than others, I think this art form will thrive. It's just a matter of how we present it. Do you think anything has changed post-pandemic? I think there's an argument that you can see people more appreciative, keener to participate in live experiences post-pandemic, because during the pandemic, they realized they missed them. And the more people, my view, the more people experience live music, the more they want to hear more live music. If you've heard, if you've heard a very good orchestra play, it's a very different experience from listening to it digitally. Totally. So, so the more people want to do live experiences, well, you were just talking about that. That shared experience is a big thing, and I think music is a is a key part of the human soul. And people love music; it's in them. But the more they can discover, the more they can experience it live, the more they want to do it, which I think you could make the argument, therefore, that actually music is due a live music is due a sort of ongoing renaissance. Do you, do you subscribe to that? Do you think there's sort of something totally. happened in the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. You know, during the pandemic, I mean, I think everybody was staring on the screen for like, you know, as long as, as your eyes can take it or your psychic can take it. And, you know, what's so interesting during the pandemic, it was a, a stressful time because everybody expect like perfection. Like when you see it digitally, you know, you started to notice, oh, that is not in tune. That is not together. But, you know, after a while, perfection doesn't satisfy me anymore. I wanted, I wanted raw energy. I wanted to be in the room, even when they try to do something. And then like an Olympian, sometimes when you push outside your limit, it's never going to be perfect all the time. I miss that. Music shouldn't be just about perfection. You know, we, 
as trained musicians, we, we become very picky. But I, I finally realized that music is more than just notes, more than just perfection. Music is communicating what we're trying to say. And so I think it's a big difference in terms of we talk about music and dish. So Beethoven five, it could be you can think of like a well-known dish that you have taste for a long time. But, you know, it's so interesting because a different restaurant that make the same dish could taste totally different. And that's what different orchestras does for me is that I listen really hard of what the ingredients I get to get. And then I try to tell them, I mean, yes, every Beethoven 5 I conduct is going to have my flavor, but at the same time, I need their help. I'm not the one making sound. If you if you hear me in a concert, that's a that's bad news. And so, so I'm trying to tell the musicians, look, you have to come with me. Be willing to jump off the cliff. Sometimes that's what what we can, the circle of energy, the audience know when we take a chance and when we try to push this pass, passage, you know, to the limit. And that that makes classical music fun. Because if we just play like autopilot and trying to control everything as perfect as we can sometimes we lose the point of what music is actually about if you could go back in time and give advice to your 10 year old self and at 10 years you knew what you wanted to do what would you have done differently or what what key kind of advice would you have wanted to hear i'm I'm really i'm asking for you know anyone who is listening anyone who has children who are listening who can't whose dream is to pursue a career in music but they think maybe it's risky maybe it's too difficult to get into and you know there are safer things to do for talented people i think i will give these advice to the younger self you know i am an example of living an impossible dream nobody thought i could come this far my parents my classmates you name it Probably my teachers, some of them have more faith in me than I do. But here are the advice I I will give to myself and those of you who are out there who are either in music or not in music, this might also apply to you. Number one, be yourself. Number two, don't let anyone tell you that your dream is impossible. You have to be the first one to think it is possible. Number three, create your own path. Perhaps easier to follow someone else's path, but everyone is unique and it's more rewarding to carve out what suits you the best. Number four, be brave and find your true voice, even when the whole world seems to be against you. Number five, believe in yourself and find angels who also believe in you. Number six, persevere with passion. Keep it going because you absolutely love what you do and what you can share with the world. And that's that's a great list of things. I'm pretty sure every 10-year-old in the world would benefit from from hearing them. Let me ask you you a couple more questions. One is, what other types of music do you you really enjoy? So if, if you have to have a month without classical music, what are you going to listen to? So that's the first question. You know, I, I I keep a very open mind. I listen to some of the stuff my sister listened to, just, just like when we were growing up. So she's listened to sort of the pops um, coming out of Asia. Well, that's where I get my, my feel of what is trendy. 
I, sometimes I don't know what to look for. I, you know, I look for Spotify suggestions of, you know, things that I, I don't know, but you know, uh, could be really interesting. So I am open to all kinds of music. So, for example, like klezmer music, I wasn't really exposed to it until, you know, I literally have to do a collaboration with a Muka Pasa uh, in Chicago as a mismatch match matching bank. They have klezmer music, and you know, we actually ended up collaborating with the klezmer band, and it's so fun connecting with the Jewish history, but it's also rooted in classical music. Believe it or not, Gustav Mahler used it in his symphonies, and you know, gospel music are something that was new to me because of my work with Chicago Sinfonietta. We work with the Apostolic Church of God Sanctuary Choir, two hundred voices. That was new to me. I never listened to. I wasn't exposed to gospel when I was in Taiwan, and so I'm constantly finding out things out there that you know that I don't know. And so uh, I think the model at Chicago Sinfonietta is to always dream of the impossible. You know, so any I'm open to anything. Nothing is impossible to be incorporated in a classical concert. And so here, here is a really a short, short and fun uh, example. So I just mentioned about gospel music. Actually, I'm the first conductor I think in the world that literally brought a gospel choir in between the Dvorak Symphony call from the New World, the Dvorak Symphony Number no. Nine, and because that's what Dvorak heard when he was writing this masterpiece. And so, so for me, there's a lot of life experience. Plays into my work, and so I'm always keeping an open mind. Okay, so final question, which I already asked you at the start. So, as I said, on the BBC, there is this thing called Desert Island Discs, and you're cast away to a desert island, and you're only allowed to take eight pieces of music with you. I think eight's too many to ask you, but what what would be the pieces of music you would think about? So, these are clearly things that either mean a lot to you, clearly you have to love them, and there's got to be an element of you're going to hear them a lot on the desert island, so you've got to be, you know, they, they have to age well. So what, what you know, throw a few sort of suggestions at me, pieces of music that you might take with you. You know, I would take the Project W that we recorded, and I'll tell you why, because, like, I could listen to Florence Price anytime. I mean, there was just a very nostalgic voice. She uses African-American spirituals, gospel, and to morph into something beautiful. Jesse Montgomery, who is now the composer and resident of Chicago Symphony, uh, she writes very interesting, sort of a new form of music. She grew up in New York, and literally, it was just a melting pot of music that she grew up with. Rena Esmel, who has been composer and resident of Seattle Symphony, uh, combines her musical heritage from India. That's where her parents are from. And she did a Fulbright. She combines Indian music with uh, uh, play by Western instruments. And she's the, the, the first one that I know how to cross that really interesting two almost different genres of music and morph into the same. Clarice Assad, the daughter of the uh, Brazilian Assad brothers, creates this very, you know, sort of Southern American, Northern American. She's always combining things that musical heritage that that's important to her life. And, I, you know, I 
I don't think I ever get tired of hearing these women uh, alongside with, you know, I will probably take Beethoven 5 and Tchaikovsky 5 just because those pieces were with me through the ups and downs when the rejection letters were more than the notes I ever conducted. Tchaikovsky 5, you know, that horn solo comforted me in the lowest time of my life. And Beethoven 5 was 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 the faith, the piece that opened so many opportunities when I almost gave up uh, dreaming about being a conductor. And so those pieces would never would, would never be just notes for me. Those pieces meant life and death for me. And, and so I treasure those. And I would say also Dvorak, for those of you who don't know Dvorak, this is a, a composer that uses so many he doesn't actually quote uh, specific melodies other than the spirituals he heard in America and from the New World played by the English horn solo. But, you know, he was able to find his own country's voice. This is a Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, and the Slavic kind of a wonderful language. And he was able to make something beautiful out of something he's familiar and yet created something new. So I think, yeah, I will never get tired of listening to these composers. So so even though you're going to be alone on this hypothetical desert island, I don't think you are going to be at all, are you, with your music? I think you're going to be just fine. Yep, that's right. That's right. You're right. Mayan, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a, a delight to have you on. Uh, you're the first musician we've had, and I doubt that we'll have another one as good as you. So thank you very much. Well, and thank you for, for what you do of, you know, tagging into all these interesting questions uh, that connected to life uh, in general. And I'm really honored to be the first musician, hopefully not the last you will have. So good for you for championing for the arts. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Spotify. And if you'd like, please leave us a review. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at active.williamblair.com and follow us on Instagram at williamblairim. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. 
William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.